tonight, I'd like to tell a story from the time of the Buddha. Some of you may be familiar with at least parts of this story. It's the story of a mass murderer at the time of the Buddha. His name, his first name was Ahimsaka, which meant harmless. And then he gained the name Angulimala, which basically the literal meaning of that phrase is finger garland because uh, he was given that name because he is said to have cut off the little fingers of all of his victims and strung them on a garland around his neck. And so this was a kind of a horrific Uh, murderer at the time of the Buddha. And so many of you may be familiar with parts of this story. The the story, the basic story that most of us are familiar with comes from the suttas. There's a whole sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses about this person. But there's also in the commentaries um, kind of a backstory of how Ahimsaka changed from being harmless to being a mass murderer. And to me, that backstory is very um, moving in many ways, uh, moving in the way of uh, kind of opening our eyes around ways in which we affect each other. The other night when he spoke about the Buddhist teachings on social and communal harmony and how the way that we engage in the world, if we're acting out of greed, aversion, and delusion, it's not only affecting our own minds, it's affecting those who we meet. And this story is demonstrating that, demonstrating that that part of life. And also, I think you may notice some resonances in this backstory um, in terms of things that go on today and to reflect on how little our minds have changed in 2,600 years and how applicable the teachings of the Buddha still are to us. So some aspects of this story kind of seem almost magical or mystical or mythological. And we don't actually know how much of this story is true, but it does seem that it is, um, um, at least some aspects of it, there was probably, just as there was probably the historical person of the Buddha, there was probably this historical person of this mass murderer. And this story is ultimately a story of redemption. And so for myself, I find kind of um, some inspiration in this story. There's um, a way in which at times in my, in my practice, thinking about this story, I've thought, well, if Angulimala can do it, maybe I can too. 
So the story, the backstory. I'll read some of it and I'll summarize some of it. At the Buddhist time at the court of King Pasanadi of Kosala, there was a learned Brahmin who held the office of a royal chaplain and was thus one of the kingdom's highest dignitaries. One night his wife gave birth to a son. Soon afterwards, the father cast the boy's horoscope and to his consternation found that his son was born under the robber constellation. This indicated that the boy would have within him a tendency to commit robbery. On that same day of the child's birth, there was another disquieting event. All the weapons and armory in the city of Savati had suddenly begun to sparkle. In the morning, the Brahmin went to the palace as usual and asked the king how he had slept. How could I have slept well, replied the king. I woke up in the night and saw that my auspicious weapons lying at the end of my bed were in bright sparkle, and so I was afraid and perturbed. Should this mean danger to the kingdom or my life? The Brahmin said, The same strange thing happened in the entire city, and it does not concern you. Last night, my wife bore a son, and unfortunately his horoscope had the robber constellation. This must have caused the weapons to sparkle. The king asked, will he be a lone robber or the chief of a gang? Will he, do, he will do it alone, your majesty. What if I were to kill him now and prevent further misdeeds? So the father was actually proposing, willing to sacrifice his own son for this. But the king responded, as he would be a loner, let him be raised and properly educated then perhaps he may lose those evil tendencies. So there's this kind of the nature-nurture question, even alive here at the time of the Buddha. The idea that a loving home and a good family and um, ethics, education and ethics would uh, support a, a mind moving in that direction. And so this is why the boy was called ahimsaka, harmless, to kind of incline his mind in that direction. When he grew up, he was quite well behaved, very strong in body, but he was also studious and intelligent. His parents had good reason to think any evil tendencies had been removed by good education and by the religious atmosphere of the home. This made them very happy. In due course, his father sent Ahimsaka for the traditional studies to Takasila, the famous university of India. He was accepted by the foremost teacher of that university and continued to be studious, so he surpassed his fellow students. He also became his teacher's favorite. This made his fellow students very jealous. Since that young Ahimsaka came, we are almost forgotten. We must put a stop to it and cause a break between him and the teacher. So they began trying to slander Ahimsaka. This didn't apparently work very well because his conduct was so upstanding. And they decided they had to put a, they had to alienate the teacher from his favorite student. 
And they realized they couldn't just do this by, you know, they had to create a plot, a plan, basically. And so they, um, they went, they decided to create this um, separate groups of people that would go to the teacher independently as if they were unconnected to each other and tell the teacher that they had heard or had the sense that Ahimsaka was plotting against the teacher. The first time this happened, the teacher dismissed it out of hand. The second time it happened, again, he dismissed it out of hand. The third time, the group kind of cunningly added, and I have to say that whatever they were saying, this plotting, this is all fabrication. There was no truth whatsoever to this. They were lying to his teacher. Fake news. And at the third group, the third group, um, they not only told the same lie to the teacher, but they added this, this little extra bit. They said, if you don't trust us, examine it for yourself. So check it out for yourself. From this poisonous seed, a suspicion took root in his heart, in the teacher's heart. And he came to believe that Ahimsaka actually wanted to push him out. Once a suspicion is roused, one can always find something that seems to confirm it. So I'm going to stop there with the story because that's something to explore and reflect on in terms of our own minds, how views affect us. So, so far, what we've had is the jealousy of the students, an unwholesome mind state that clouds our minds, probably an equal mixture of greed, aversion, and delusion and jealousy. Aversion to, in this case, aversion to not having the relationship with the teacher that they'd once had, envy or jealousy of Ahimsaka's close relationship to the teacher, and delusion that this is all a problem and that they had to fix this somehow, change this somehow. And so their action, they, they, they felt from this jealousy that they had to create a separation. And the only way they knew how to do it was through lying, through falsehoods, through unethical behavior, through propaganda, essentially here, because um, they, uh, they kind of consciously had this propaganda of, hmm, we hear a Himsaka is planning to harm you, is planning to throw you out, is planning to um, overthrow you in plotting against you. And it, it came in three different ways from seemingly three different directions, unconnected. And so this points to some, sometimes ways in which views can begin to be developed in our mind. We hear something multiple times, and that seed of doubt, or, hmm, maybe it is true, begins to, to take root. We become more likely to believe it. And the, the story, the, the story that... Um, even points to once suspicion is roused, one can always find something that seems to confirm it. 
So this is really that kind of uh, function of our minds that is given the name these days of confirmation bias. If we have a particular view or belief, the way our minds tend to work is not as rationally taking in information and weighing it impartially. Our minds actively search out things that confirm our beliefs and actively ignore things that don't confirm our beliefs. This is well-researched and well-documented, how these views and beliefs, how our minds bias themselves to our views and beliefs and discount or feel like information to the contrary is not reliable, but information that supports our own view is reliable. So this kind of, this kind of um, people holding different views and how that plays out, this has been happening for thousands of years in human minds. So it's not new what's happening here in our own minds, here in our cultures. It's not new that people try to sow dissent between others out of jealousy or greed or hatred. These are tendencies of a human mind. In some ways, it's a frightening aspect of our minds, this confirmation bias and the, the, the almost um, willful ignorance. It's, it's not consciously willful, ignoring of perspectives that don't support our own view, but it is kind of a function of how our, our human system tends to work. And it particularly tends to work that way when we aren't aware that it works that way. There's a lot of studies that also point to how if people are given the chance to reflect on their perspective, asked questions about it, begin to expose, hmm, maybe I don't know much, uh, as much about this as I thought I did, then we begin to have a more even-handed approach to taking in the information. And so knowing this about our minds, knowing this piece of information about our minds is really useful. It's a powerful function. It's really connected to delusion, this, this piece of confirmation bias. It's connected to how our minds obscure things. The creation of views itself is quite um, a thing to reflect on as well. In this case, it was multiple, you know, the story talks about multiple sources coming at the teacher. But there are studies, um, I was reviewing um, an article um, called Why Facts Don't Change Our Minds, which seems to certainly have some truth to it. And it was pointing to how quickly views become established in our minds. 
there was a, a research study done, and the, I, I just have the barest outline of this research study, but um, students were given one of two packets of information about a story about one, one data point about a firefighter who was either a risk taker or um, a risk, risk-averse person. And the stories um, uh, either had the firefighter who the firefighter who was risk a risk uh, who who was risk averse. They either had that risk averse firefighter um, winning accolades for his skill and his um, the ways in which uh, he was a successful and good firefighter, or the, the story in the other packet talked about how that firefighter was always, um, you know, not, not saving lives and he had been written up and um, uh, hadn't been um, uh, a very good firefighter. And so there was a one, just one story these, these, the, the people were given in this study. And then they were told, like almost immediately, they were told, that the entire thing had been made up. So they were given this packet of information and then they were told, oh, by the way, that was just completely a fabricated story. No truth to it whatsoever. And then later on, I don't know how much later they did this question, they asked how much they thought being risk-averse or uh, a risk-taker would affect their performance, at, uh, would affect someone's performance as a firefighter. And the answers were split right exactly along the lines of the packages they had been given. The ones who'd been told that the, the risk-averse person was a good firefighter believed that that would make them a good firefighter to be risk-averse. That that would lead to somebody being a good firefighter. So one exposure to information, told immediately it was made up, and still it influenced the view. That, to me, brought quite a bit of pause. It's almost as if, and I don't know, they have, I, I haven't read this, but it almost seems as though our minds may be predisposed to believe the first thing it hears. And so if that's the case, we really ought to take care with that um, understanding that beliefs are happening. So this is the area, this is really a big area of delusion, is beliefs are operating and we are not aware they're beliefs. We simply take them to be the way it is. And so uh, the more we can be curious about, are we acting out of beliefs kind of curious about what belief is motivating my action right now. And and even if it's just exposed, oh, this is a belief happening, that at least gives a little bit of space in the mind to uh, not just take it to be truth. So in this story, the information was false, but repeated with confidence, it created that seed of doubt in the teacher's mind. And given that, starting to look for evidence with that kind of proposal, you know, 
Well, you check it out. The, uh, the mind began to overlay that view onto Ahimsaka's behavior and to find things that were evidence of him trying to overthrow the teacher. So he found this supposed evidence. And he decided this was dangerous. That uh, this strong student of his was trying to overthrow him was a danger to him. And so the teacher's suspicion grew into conviction. I must kill him or get killed. Get him killed. But he considered, it will not be easy to kill such a strong man. Besides, if he's slain while living here as my pupil, it will harm my reputation. And students may no longer come to me. I must think of some other device to get rid of him as well as punish him. So the teacher is taking action now. And this is, um, the teacher does not know at this point that he's acting on falsehood. He thinks he's done an independent investigation, unaware that his um, mind was clouded and skewed in the gathering of that invest- the information of that investigation, unaware that the evidence he thinks he's gathered has already been biased from the view that was looking for it. And so the students have told the lie knowing it was a lie, wanting to get rid of Ahimsaka, wanting to separate the teacher from Ahimsaka. The teacher is acting on what he thinks is truth, and yet his actions too are beginning to be um, motivated by aversion and hatred, anger. And I think a big piece of this story, at least one thread that runs through this story, is the thread around sila, around ethics. Because at each step, if the students had reflected on the action they were taking as being unethical, as being, this is telling a lie, this is not a wholesome way to, to engage, then they, they might not have done that action. The teacher behaving based on what he thinks is truth, he had no reason to believe that the students were lying after he confirmed it himself. And yet his actions too are based in anger and motivated by anger He's looking for ways to harm his student, looking for ways to get rid of his student. Feeling justified, perhaps, because there is danger. So this happens, you know, this happens all over the place. We we may feel like we are acting in uh, self-righteousness or self, 
defense, self-justified, you know, just self-justified. The, the, the action is justified. And yet, this is a place in the teaching of ethics that we're grounded in these actions are not wholesome. Is there some other kind of action that, I mean, many other kinds of actions the teacher could have taken, talking to Ahimsaka to find out what's going on. So the next part of the story is the teacher... um, creating this plot of the scheme. So Ahimsaka's course of studies were coming to an end, and the teacher used that as a kind of a way. There's, I think in, at the time of uh, that time in India, there was a kind of a, an honoring of the teacher at the end of your course of studies. And he points to this. My dear Ahimsaka, for one who has completed their studies, it is a duty to give a gift of honor to the teacher. So give it to me. Certainly, Master, what shall I give? You must bring me a thousand human little fingers of the right hand. Then you'll be concluding your ceremonial homage to the science you have learned. Ahimsaka is horrified by this suggestion and says, I can't do that. My family has never been engaged in violence. My name is harmless. My family has always been harmless. And the teacher simply said, well, if you don't do this, the studies that you have done will yield no fruit. And so with that, Ahimsaka consented. So this is, this is a kind of an odd piece of the story. And yet... You know, if we reflect on the situation here, you know, and this, the, 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 in this place of the story, the, um, the, the commentaries kind of pause and say, why would Ahimsaka do this? And some of it is pointed to, back to his underlying tendencies, the fact that it's said that he was born in this robber constellation, that he had these tendencies, these deep underlying tendencies that might not have been um, um, redirected based on his upbringing. And so that's one explanation. And the other explanation is the guru devotion uh, aspect that often was a piece, I understand, of a teacher-student relationship. Your teacher asks you to do something, and that's an honoring of the teacher to do it, to trust, trust in the teacher. If we think about this kind of, how this can play out, it's not only a teacher-student relationship, but there's also a power dynamic there. 
someone who has more power, authority, asking you to do something. Almost like sometimes there's something in our in our uh, makeup, our social hierarchy makeup that kind of gives over our authority to somebody in power. And this is not only true at the time of the Buddha in this kind of teacher-student relationship, but seems to be true now, today. There were um, questions after the uh, Second World War. How many, how could people do all of these horrible uh, things? Imprisoning and killing the Jewish people. How could, how could that happen? And there were studies that kind of scientists were, were kind of curious about the, this authority kind of piece. And one very famous set of studies many of you have probably heard, on, heard of, the Milgram experiments done in the early 1960s in Yale, at Yale University, where basically um, they were looking at how people would relate to authority and would they do something when an authority figure told them to do it that they wouldn't otherwise do. And so the experiment was set up to have, um, have a, um, a person come to the lab. There was two people who came to the lab, but one of them was a, a ringer, one of them was a, an actor. And um, that person always became the person who would be the recipient of... Uh, a set of shocks. This was supposed to be a study on learning. And there was supposed to be some questions asked. And if the person got it wrong, they were going to be given a shock. And this was supposed to test or study a certain aspect of using negative reinforcement for learning. And so the person who was the, in the, the being experimented on here, basically, um, was asked when the person who was the, 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 the student kept getting wrong answers, they were asked to turn up the voltage on the shock. And the, the, the voltage, um, um, the, the readout had, you know, like it said 15, mild, and then it got up to 450, and it had big red thing, danger. It said danger on the, on the dial. When the... Um, the, the experimenter standing in the room with the person, um, when the person who was, all, who was giving the shocks expressed some kind of um, hesitancy to shock the person, to turn up the, um, the voltage and shock the person at a higher level of, of uh, shock, the, the person often said, oh, I don't know, I, I don't want to continue. And the experimenter would say something like, no, please continue, or you must continue, or the experiment requires to continue, or you have no choice but to continue. Things like that. The experimenter would just say things like that. In these studies, two-thirds of the participants gave the highest level of shock. 
two-thirds. Everyone gave a substantial level of shocks. This is what Milgram wrote. I set up a simple experiment at Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person simply because they were ordered to do so by an experimental scientist. Stark authority was pitted against the participants' strongest moral imperatives against hurting others, and with the participants' ears ringing with the screams of the victims, authority went out more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths on the command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact that most urgently demands explanation. So this kind of power, authority, may have played a big role in Angulimala's acquiescence. Variations on this study point to even simple modifications of this study, like whether the person is wearing a lab coat or not. Like they, they don't wear the lab coat. The willingness to uh, continue drops instead of it being two-thirds of the people, only 20% of the people. Another variation on the study had the experimenter remind the people that they bore the ethical responsibility for any harm that would come to the other person. With that, almost nobody followed through. So a simple reminding that our actions are our own ethical responsibility, that reminder was very powerful. Just remembering that, yeah, some authority figure tells me to do it, but it's my responsibility. So this is maybe what Ahimsaka did not remember, that he was bearing the, uh, their responsibility for the harm that would come to these victims. So again, with this story, you know, the, the playing out of, of the, um, the ethics here. Ethics is about non-harming. And so many places along the way, harming is generating harming. This influence we have on each other conditioning nature that we have on each other and the way ignorance, delusion kind of are running the show and a piece of maybe how grounding ourselves in ethics grounding ourselves in ethics can help to have us recognize when we are being guided by delusion. This is a piece, I think, that the, why the Buddha emphasized sila so much. It, it really helps us to recognize, uh, is this going to cause harm? Basically, I think he's saying, if, if your action is going to cause harm, 
there's delusion there. There's danger there. There's greed or aversion there. So take care. So the story continues. Ahimsaka goes out and marauds the neighborhood, kills thousands, no, hundreds of people. He gets to 999 people. He starts out in the forest, and after he's killed people who go through the forest, people stop going through the forest, and so he can't find more people to kill in the forest, so he starts going into the villages, grabbing people out of their homes, killing people in their homes. And so the villages get abandoned, and the, the, the villagers, the people in this area, go to the king and say, you've got to take care of this guy. He is creating havoc. He's killed hundreds of people. And so the king um, sends out an army to try to find Angulimala to kill him. At the same time, um, his mother hears about this murderer roaming the neighborhood, and her suspicion is, is piqued. Wonder. She, she thinks, she has the intuition that this is her son. Nobody has said who it is, that the name at this point, the name that this person is given at this point is Angulimala, not Ahimsaka. And yet she has this intuition. Her son never returned home from the university. There was this foretelling when he was born that he was going to be some sort of a, a bandit. And so she is suspicious. And so she, she goes out to investigate, to see. And so the same time the king is kind of heading there, his mother's heading there, and then the Buddha comes into the story. The Buddha with his um, kind of, this is one of the mystical parts of the story almost, or magical. It's like he kind of surveys the, the world with his mind, and he saw this kind of playing out. And he apparently had a many lifetimes connection with Angulimala and knew from kind of this surveying of the situation that there was a bad situation getting ready to play out, that his mother was going to try to stop him from getting his thousandth finger, which would have fulfilled Angulimala's um, duty for his teacher. And the um, understanding in um, Buddhist psychology or in, in Buddhist... Um, um, can't think of the word, the metaphysics, the, the Buddhist metaphysics, that if you kill a parent in this life, there's no way that your mind would ever be able to become fully free in this life. And yet, there is never... I mean, one, one thing about this, the teaching... Um, around 
freedom is that there is no one who is beyond redemption. There's always that possibility for freedom. This, this understanding here that I'm pointing to is in this life that the action to kill a parent is so agitating for the mind that there would be no way that mind would ever be able to settle, to let go into complete surrender, complete release from clinging. It would always be holding on to that, that action in some fashion. Denying it, pushing it away, regret, remorse, self-justification, whatever. The mind would not be able to, to let go in this lifetime. That's not to say that over the course of many, many lifetimes that a person would... Um, not be able to become free, but in this lifetime. And yet the Buddha also saw in this surveying of Angulimala's mind that if even having killed 999 people, his mind had so much wholesomeness from his stream of previous lives, previous actions, that he had the capacity to fully awaken in this lifetime if he did not kill his mother. And so the Buddha decided to intervene, to put himself in the picture, which he felt like, you know, he thought, if, you know, if I go there, if I go into the forest, he'll see me and he'll try to kill me instead of killing his mother. And so these three uh, scenarios are kind of playing out at the same time. And so the, the Buddha goes to the forest and sees Angulimala. And this is where another piece of the the magical part of the story comes in. So Angulimala, from his lookout, first saw his mother approaching. Though recognizing her, still the thought arose to complete the thousand fingers by killing her. At that moment, the Buddha appeared on the road between Angulimala and his mother. Seeing him, Angulimala thought, why should I kill my mother for the sake of one finger when there is someone else? Let her live. And so then uh, he turned towards the Buddha. And the Buddha, at this point, performed a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, going as fast as he could, running to catch up with the Buddha, was unable to catch up with the, the Buddha. The Buddha was walking at his normal pace, a slow, mindful walk through the forest. And Angulimala, running as fast as he could, could not catch up with him. And he was confused by this, and he kind of yelled out at the Buddha. He said, stop, monk, stop. And the Buddha responded, turned, kind of said over his shoulder, I have stopped, Angulimala. It's time for you to stop. That kind of shook Angulimala up because at that point the Buddha was still walking and Angulimala was standing still. And so he said, what do you mean? You're still walking. I'm stopped. How have you stopped and I've not stopped? The Buddha responded, Angulimala, I have stopped forever for swearing violence to every living being, but you have no restraint towards things that breathe. So that is why I have stopped 
and you have not. So at this point, Angulimala kind of has a turning of the mind. It's almost like his, his, his childhood with love and care or perhaps previous lives came back to him and he remembered something of his other nature. And this is a wisdom teaching here and it's a teaching on ethics pointing to the stopping of harm. But it's also a pointing to, in some ways, the stopping of ignorance. Ignorance leads to unwholesome behavior, leads to unethical behavior, leads us to harm others. It also creates harm for ourselves. And so I think that this stopping that the Buddha is pointing to here is not only talking about stopping unethical actions, but the deeper stopping of ignorance, the deeper stopping of the root of what leads to that unethical action. And so Angulimala felt like he'd found a new teacher. Asked the Buddha, if he could study with him. The Buddha agreed. And Angulimala decided to keep his name, Finger Garland, to just help him remember that tendency of mind towards delusion. And so, I'm not quite sure how these pieces come together, but, you know, so Angulimala, the Buddha, kind of heading back to the Buddha's monastery, maybe get to the monastery, I think. And the king is meanwhile still looking for Angulimala to kill him. And the king, um, knowing where the Buddha is staying, stops in the monastery where the Buddha is. And so he stops with his army there and pays respects to the Buddha. And the Buddha says, why do you have the army? And... uh, the king, Pasanadi, says, I'm looking for Angulimala. Great king, if you were to see Angulimala with shaven head and beard, clad in yellow robe, gone forth from the home life into homelessness, that he was abstaining from killing living beings, from taking what is not given and from false speech, eating only one time a day, was living the life of purity and virtue and noble conduct. If you saw him thus, how would you treat him? Venerable sir, we should pay homage to him, invite him to accept the four requisites of a monk and should arrange for his protection. But how could such an unvirtuous person of evil character have such virtue and restraint? Then the Buddha extended his right arm and said, Great King, this is Angulimala, because Angulimala was sitting next to the Buddha. The king was greatly alarmed, and his hair stood on end. He entirely lost his composure, so terrifying was Angulimala's reputation. 
But the Buddha said, do not be afraid, great king. There is nothing for you to fear. And at that point, when the king regained his composure, he asked Angulimala for his name, his birth name, and he realized that this had been the child that had been born years before that that night when the the weapons were sparkling. And so he knew that this was a, a child that he actually knew. And he offered him protection. He offered him uh, robes. So to me, there's an interesting counterpoint that happens here in the story. So the Buddha is with Angulimala, and the king comes. And the Buddha says, you have nothing to fear. The teacher, the one in power, the one with elevated authority, tells the king, You have nothing to fear. Trust me. This is an interesting counterpoint to me because that's the kind of other, the flip side of it was the teacher telling Ahimsaka, trust me, this is what you have to do. And so what's the difference here? What's the difference? It's like this, the question comes in my mind, how do we know that the king can trust the Buddha? And again, the story points back to ethics. Ahimsaka was being asked to do something that caused harm. That should be a a, a kind of a, a warning sign. The Buddha was asking the king to not cause harm. So again, pointing back to ethical conduct in teachers, in what teachers are asking of us. And so this also is, in this case, pointing to the possibility of redemption for Angulimala because he has become ordained. The king is believing this possibility of redemption at this point. So maybe we can use ethics too, heading back into our lives, remembering how important ethics is for us to combat ignorance and craving, letting it be a kind of a warning sign for us. And so this part of the story up until now has been very much about the uh, relational part of life, how we influence each other. In the first part of the story, how greed, aversion, and delusion influences, generates more greed, aversion, and delusion. In the, in the part where the Buddha comes in, how kindness and compassion generates kindness and compassion in the king, supports Angulimala to take a new direction, And so the the kind of influence there, the influence that we have on each other in the wholesome. So this this interweaving, this this way in which we impact and affect each other has been a big part of this story so far. And it's a big one, I think, for us in going back home, just to recognize not only how we are affected, but how we affect. What we put into the world is not a small thing. 
It has ripple effects that we cannot possibly comprehend. Ripples out from us. But there's also an internal dimension to our experience. And the next part of the story kind of picks that up. Because Angulimala sits down and tries to meditate. Goes out for alms rounds and not very well received in the neighborhood because at this point they know who he is. But in his practice, I mean, can you imagine having killed 999 people and sit down to meditate? The kind of things that might arise in the mind The story proposes something. Angulimala had not been able to focus his mind on the basic meditation subject which he had received, though he tried day and night. Before his mind's eye had appeared the place in the jungle where he had slain so many people. He heard their plaintive voices imploring him, Let me live, my lord. I am a poor man and have many children. He saw the frantic movements of their arms and legs in the fear of death. When faced with such memories, deep remorse gripped him and made him get up from his seat and leave. And so this was a struggle. The practice for Angulimala was not easy. And that makes sense to me. (laughs) That makes a great deal of sense to me. There was also a piece of this story, a kind of an, a, a kind of an, in the going on alms rounds, there's a piece of the story where uh, he's not getting any much in the way of alms, but he continues to do this each day, going through the village. And one day he hears a woman in the pain of childbirth, really experiencing some of the pains of childbirth, and his heart is broken open in compassion. The, the, the suffering, it's said he said, oh, the beings experience, beings experience so much suffering and felt compassion for this woman in the pain of childbirth, and also broader compassion for beings who suffer. And so this is a transformative moment for Angulimala, I think, is that that moment where the the heart is able to take in the suffering of others. When we're... um, Behaving non-ethically, we are having to close our hearts to the suffering of others. I mean, to close our hearts to the harm. It's like our, our, heart, our hearts don't want to feel that when we're behaving unethically. And so it kind of creates this block for us. And so this, this part of the story to me is pointing to the softening of the heart that's happening. So a little bit of the transformation that's happening. Feeling the pain of the world. And in response, the Buddha suggests that Angulimala could go to, um, to that woman who's experiencing pain and say, he, he said two things, which is kind of odd, and I don't know why he does these two things so much. He says... Go to... 
Angulimala, go to that woman and say, Since I was born, I have never purposely deprived a living being of life. By that truth, may you and the infant be safe. So, I don't know, maybe this is somewhere, something around testing Angulimala's willingness to just follow blindly the teachings of what the, the teacher said. He said, go to her and say, I have never purposely deprived a being of life. And by that truth, may the infant be safe. And Angulimala said, I can't do that. That is not true. I cannot do that. And so, you know, so here is another kind of maybe counterpoint in the story where the Buddha asks Angulimala to do something or tells him to do something. But in this case, the unethical or the, the, the thing that he's telling him to do is a lie. And so Angulimala says, no, I can't do that. So the Buddha changes the sentence. He says, then Angulimala say to the person, say to the woman, since I was born with the noble birth, I have never purposely deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you and the infant be safe. So Angulimala did that. That he felt he could say truthfully, that since he ordained since he started on the path that the Buddha taught, he had never purposely deprived somebody of life. And the story goes that the woman had an easier childbirth because he said that to her. And one of the kind of mystical, magical teachings in the suttas. Um, but the other piece of it, and maybe a piece that points back for us, is that it seemed to create the conditions then for Angulimala to remember that those actions that he did that were coming up in his mind, the memories of the murders, those were in the past and he was no longer in danger of doing that. And so that statement was a reminder to Angulimala of his ethical conduct. And it said that not long after that point, Angulimala's mind settled and he became one of the arhats, as all good Buddhist stories end with the <laughs> person becoming fully enlightened. But this is also something that we can reflect on. And again, through the, through the reflection of sila, Remembering your own goodness. If you're finding your mind struggling with things from the past or just struggling to settle, maybe recalling your own goodness, remembering your own ethical conduct, maybe bringing to mind, I think um, Jaya brought in the paramis, reflecting on the paramis last night remembering how what you've been doing here is cultivating the wholesome, that can create conditions for the mind to be able to settle. I'll end with reading a couple of the verses that Angulimala wrote after his awakening.
who once did live in recklessness and then is reckless no more shall illumine the world like the full moon set free from a cloud who checks unprofitable deeds who checks the evil karma shall illumine the world like the moon unveiled from a cloud oh they are fools who have and have no wits who give themselves to recklessness but those of sense guard diligence and treat it as their greatest good oh give not way to recklessness nor harbor love of sense desires but diligently meditate so as to reach the perfect bliss I stayed in forests, at the root of a tree, in mountain caves, but with an agitated heart. But now I rest and rise in happiness and happily spend my life. For now I am free of Mara's snares. Oh, for the pity shown me by the Master. free of craving, without grasping, with guarded senses, well-restrained. Eliminated the root of misery, the ending of all taints attained. 